Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Dan Snow's History. Welcome to the podcast. Today we've got part 2 of our extraordinary chronicle of the life of Eva Schloss, Anne Frank's stepsister. Eva was born in Austria in May 1929. Her early years were spent playing outdoors, skiing, and having adventures with her daredevil father and beloved older brother Heinz. But when Germany annexed Austria in 1938, their neighbors and friends turned on them for being Jewish, and she and her family fled to Belgium and then to the Netherlands. There, life was much better. They lived in a big apartment with a piano. The kids at school were fascinated by her stories of alpine mountains and On sunny afternoons, she played on the street with other children. One of the little girls who played as well out in the streets after school was Anne Frank, and we were both eleven at the time, so we were friends. And when I told her I had an older brother, because she was very keen on boys with eleven already, she said, "Oh, when can I come to your apartment and meet him?" But he wasn't interested in a little girl. Like his sister, you know, too young for him. <laughs> But soon after the German invasion, the Nazis arrived at their door, and like the Franks, Eva's family went into hiding. For two years, they moved around the houses of Dutch locals involved with the resistance, concealing Jews from the Nazis. Eva passed her time by reading, and her brother Heinz learned to paint. But eventually, in May 1944, after being exposed by a double agent, the Nazis took Eva and her family for questioning. They were transported to the Auschwitz-Birkenau Nazi concentration camp near Krakow in Poland. That was the last time that we were together as a family, and that is when my brother told me that the paintings and poetry he had done, when they escaped from this woman who blackmailed them for more money, they hid them under the floorboard in the loft with a note on it. That belongs to Heinz and Erich Geringer, and after the war, he's going to pick it up again. And he begged me that if I don't come back, please get it because you will really like the painting. I really want you to. And I said, no, no, of course you will. We'll go together. And so he said, no, please, you have to promise me that you will go and get it. So I promised, and my father was. Crying, he was such a tough man. But he cried, and he was, he was so upset. He said, "From now on, I'm afraid I won't be able to protect you. I got you out of Austria. I got you safe for two years, but and now I'll be powerless to do anything." And that was for him, I think, a terrible thing. That he knew he can't protect his family. As I mentioned, this is part two of her story. If you haven't already heard it, you can find the link to part one in the show notes of this episode. A warning that this story has some very distressing descriptions of human suffering. Upon arrival in Auschwitz in spring 1944, Eva and her family got out of the cattle truck they'd travelled in and onto the platform where they'd come face to face with the infamous Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele. Known as the Angel of Death for his horrifying experiments on Auschwitz inmates, he proceeded down the line to make selections of who would be sent to the gas chambers and who would live, sent to the camp barracks. After this first selection, there were practically no children. The only if you were twins and both were there, you were saved. 
It made experiments on twins. Anyway, so we entered the camp. We went into a huge, huge area, and the next command undressed completely naked. And the Nazis, young men, were walking around with their guns pointing at our embarrassment. And it was very, very hot, boiling hot there, you know, it was all metal roof, and people fainted. And I said, stand up, otherwise you can go the other side, you know. So we tried to hide people who couldn't really stand on their own between two people. And then we had to go in front of tables, and we had to say who we were, our name, our age, what profession, where we came from, which country, and everything. They kept records of everything. And then we were tattooed. We were told, you're not like a human being, forget you have a name. All our hair was shaved. That all took hours. We didn't get any drink. It was very hot. Eventually, we were let out, walking into the other part of the camp, still naked. And there was a big heap with shoes, and we were thrown two shoes, of course, never a pair. Could have been a boot and a sandal. And one garment could have been a dressing gown or a winter coat or even a nighty, and that was it. No underwear, nothing. And then we were herded into our barracks, which were narrow wooden buildings with on both sides kind of three high like cages, just wooden planks. Nothing in it, no blanket, no cushion, no straw, nothing. So you could go low, middle, or high. They told us, this is your home as long as you live. It isn't long anyway. You can imagine, we were completely distraught. Where is the rest of our family? The only thing which was there was lies and bedbugs. So within days, we were already covered in lies. And bedbugs was well the size of your thumb, and they had little legs, and they cling to your body and suck your blood. So within days, we were covered in boils and in itches and lies. And of course, you stretch. And washing, forget about washing. We never, ever washed. Can you understand? So there was many, many different camps, A, B, C. Both sides were those barracks. And at the very end, about 10 barracks on each side, there was the toilets and the washing thing. There was basins with taps which were dripping. And about 300 people were let out to go to this five taps with water. So, of course, you never got to water anywhere. So we never even bothered to go to this washing thing. The toilets, that's where big block of cement with holes in it and you had to sit on that and in the middle the couple was walking if you didn't sit because it was filthy of course you were beaten and um, it didn't go anywhere it was just holes so one of the jobs was which most of us got from time to time you got a little mug and you had to empty those things into buckets and take it somewhere to be buried. So can you imagine the germs and the stench and the filth without washing? Once a week, we had a shower and we were deloused. That was, of course, a relief. At the daytime, we had to walk to work, usually an hour somewhere, Usually we did useless work because there were hundreds, thousands of people. Some people worked in factories, but most people did do really nothing. They had to carry big boulders to one place and then somebody else had to carry it somewhere else again. And silly, silly work. Were you with your mother all the time? No, but the first work I did, I always feel a bit guilty about that. There was a work commando it was called it was called nicknamed canada and that was a huge part of the camp whatever people brought with them was taken away even your own clothes and all this had to be sorted out 
and that was a big place called Canada. And one morning when we were taken to different work, one, this S came and I stood next to my mother and he picked me and he said to the couple who was standing next to me, Canada. I had no idea what this was, but I was panicky that I would be separated from my mother and I might be somewhere completely different. You know, I had no idea. I could speak German, of course. So I said to this SS man, I said, can meine Mutter auch kommen? Can my mother come too? And the couple, her mouth dropped open. How dare she to speak to an SS, you know, that you're not allowed to speak to them. But he was as well, I think, startled that I spoke to him. And so he looked at my mother and she was a very good looking woman. So he said, yeah, Canada. So we had no idea, but then we were taken the next day to this thing. And that was a huge area with barracks full of all kinds of things, suitcases with luggage or just coats and just whatever, you know, blankets, either doubts. And we had to sort it out. One of my jobs was to open the hems of garments because a lot of people had hidden jewelry or money in those garments thinking perhaps they can bribe themselves, you know. And then you found food as well in pockets. You found bread or a sausage or things like that. So that was actually a very, very good work. And we did that for three weeks because at that time, that was June 1944, when the Hungarian Jews were picked up. And we saw them walking past, and there were thousands and thousands. Every day they came, and most of them went straight to be guests. And I felt then later very guilty. I did the work, you know, from their things, but of course I couldn't help it. But I saw them young women all just going to the guest chamber because the camp was already over full. They just didn't want any more people. Did you ever smile once when you were there? Occasionally. There was once a bit of funny incident. There was a box with cheese in the camp. A Nazi or a couple, couple got parcels from abroad, you know, they could get parcels from home. And somebody must have lost that. So a woman was opening this and it was a very smelly German cheese. But it's a delicacy, but it smells terribly bad. And she took this and was going to run away with it. And my mother said, so stop. You give some to me and my daughter, you know? And I had to laugh that my mother was so meek always, you know? She never opened her mouth. My father was the boss. And suddenly she had become, you know, so she was fighting for life of her daughter and herself. But it was quite funny. And this woman, oh, quite shocked. No, I found it. I found it, you know? <laughs> so it was quite a funny incident. But otherwise, we never smiled. But for instance, we were really starving. We got in the morning a cup of liquid and in the evening a chunk of bread. That was all we got. But of course, in Canada, we found a lot of food, so we were welcome. But some other miracle happened was we had even a lunch break. So I sat on the floor somewhere and there was a barbed fence and suddenly I saw a few men walking past and there's S and I see one of them was my father, which was amazing because they were, some were quite different, but he was there, it was definitely, and he had to carry something, and so I called to him, and he was, of course, as well shocked, and so he said, yes, I work in a timber factory, and he has to do something with timber out there. I will be here a few days, and he said to me, can you get me some cigarettes? So I said, but you don't smoke. So he said, but it is a good bargaining thing. And of course, I could find anything. People brought cigarettes, they brought everything with them. And so the next day, I had some cigarettes and I threw it over the fence. 
and he was very pleased with me, of course. I told my mother, of course, he worked in Canada, but somewhere else, said, I've seen my father. In the evening, we went back, of course, to the camp. I saw him still three times, and then he didn't come there anymore. But he told me as well that Heinz was okay. So that was, of course, a great relief because I didn't know if they had been selected or what had happened to them. So that was in the beginning. But then the transport stopped from Hungarian, and of course we were not working anymore there, and we had to do heavy work. And then you asked me if he was with my mother. Perhaps it was already September, October, I'm not sure, but it was getting a bit colder and weekly shower, which was, of course, always a relief to get rid of the lice. And we got a deloused garment. So a few days we were not itching so much. So we come out of the shower naked, of course, and there stood Mengele and a selection was taking place. So I passed naked. I had to turn in front of Mengele and he passed me and my mother was behind me. First of all, she was quite tall, and secondly, she had very often given me a bit of her bread ration, and she had become quite thin. And he looked her over again, and then he sent her to the wrong side. So that was, of course, as you can imagine, one of the most tragic and terrible events that could happen to me. Well, I had to really tell another bit of the story, otherwise it doesn't make sense. One day in the beginning, I started to be ill because I drank some water, which I shouldn't have drank because it was, I said, the water is not clean. And I got an attack of typhus. And I was really quite ill. And my mother said, I have to go with Eva to the hospital and see if we can get anything help. And people said, don't go to the hospital. She'll never come out alive. But she said, well, she'll die anyway like this. Like this, I might have a chance. So we went to this, it was not a hospital. It was a barrack where this Mengele made experiments on women and twins. But we went there. And before we entered, the door opens and a woman comes out. And my mother and she looks at it other stock still she stood both of them and then they ran to each other and it was a cousin for my mother who was actually Czech she lived in Prague but she was as well my mother's best friend because Vienna and Prague was not so far and she worked there as a nurse for Mengele and she told my mother that her husband he's a skin specialist and so he works for the Nazis and he got her a job. He said she's a nurse, but she was not a nurse. And so she worked with Mengele, which was, of course, no pleasure, but at least it was safe. And she was the only woman who had hair. They didn't shave her hair. And she gave me gave some medicine and I got better. Then we were in touch with her all the time. Sometimes she gave us a bit of extra food and so on. And the night when my mother was selected, I ran to her, which was very, very dangerous, and um, I told her that Bunti had been selected and perhaps she can save her, should go to Mengele in the morning. But then we were taken somewhere else and I didn't know anything anymore. And I was for two months, don't know exactly, but it became winter and I was on my own and I was on the point of giving up. I had frozen toes. It was so high snow. We had still shoes. We got stuck in the snow. So we were barefoot. I had big wounds on my, I could hardly walk anymore. And we had to work inside in a barrack with, got, of course, no heating. And just on the ground, the frozen ground, we had our feet. So it was unbelievable cold. And we had to make plaits. In the middle of the table, they threw material and we had to tear it to bits and we had to make plaits. 200 meters of plaits we had to do. If you didn't do that, or if they tested it, if it didn't break, 
You were taken away and killed. You worked frozen hands, starving, hungry, and frozen, and you could hardly hold the material, and you had no scissors, you had to tear it with your teeth. It was terrible. And I had no hope anymore. I said, I, I can't carry on like this. And my mother is dead. I don't know if my father is alive. I don't know about Heinz. I don't know. The couple come and said, you're wanted outside. I said, oh, well. And I go outside very, very scared. And just stood an SS man with my father. I will never able to explain how he was able to find me, how he knew. I can only call it a miracle. And of course, we embrace. And the SS man was very nice. He stood next to my father and just watched us talking and crying. And then my father asked, where is Muti? And I started crying and he said, well, well, tell me. And I said, she has been guessed. She has been selected and killed. Well, this strong man, you know, I could see he was, it was terrible to see him. He started to cry and I cried and I was so sad, so sad. And, but then he got his strength back and he said, hold on, the war will finish soon. We'll be together and Hans is okay. He told me. So he tried to encourage me not to give up. And he said, let's see if I can come again. And three times he was able to come again. And then I never saw him anymore. So I can only say that it's a miracle again, because it never, ever happened that a man came to see his family. There were some men working around sometimes, but otherwise we never even saw men. And then, of course, it became... December, I think, you know, we didn't know. We only knew it was very cold and winter and short days. The Germans started to evacuate the camp. Every day they emptied barracks with people and they just disappeared. So there was big disorganization. Sometimes we went to work, sometimes nobody bothered. So some people were moved around to different camps. Sometimes those gates were open because so many SS had gone as well. It was not guarded so much anymore. Sometimes we got food, sometimes we didn't get anything at all. So it was chaos, actually. So one day, no work, and I walk around, see if I can find anything, because sometimes SS dropped a bit of crumbs. A group of Dutch people from our transport come from another part and they see me. They said, oh, Eva, Eva, good that we see you. Uh, we have seen your mother. I said, that can't be. She has been selected. They said, yes, yes, she's in one of the barracks. So I started to believe it. First I thought she just wanted to cheer me up. So they said, try, perhaps you can one day get to this part of the camp. So I was, of course, very anxious to see. Every day I looked, was the gate open? Could I go? And so eventually one day I was able to get out there and find this other barrack. And indeed, there was my mother in a bunk, but very, very weak she was. At that time I had a heavy coat on, my mother said, oh, you look quite well. And she opened the coat and she burst into tears because there was bones, skeleton. There was a skeleton, you know, there was not much flesh on me at all. And this cousin, um, she's there as well. Minnie said, you don't go back to your camp. I will hide you here. You can stay with your mom in the same bunk. So that is what we did. And in the meantime, of course, the Russians were approaching. The German took every day still lots and lots of people out of the camp. One day at night, Nazi said, everybody out of the barracks, we are going to march, we are going to empty the camp, then we are going to burn the whole camp down. And the Russians were flying over already trying to investigate, you know, what was going on. And so there was an air raid. So all back in your barrack, we march later. And the whole night it went in and out, in and out. And my mother was so weak 
and me too. She said, look, I can't walk, I can't walk. I'm sorry, I can't go. I'll have to stay here. You go. And I said, no, I wouldn't go without you. So we stayed and we were so tired. We fell asleep and we woke up in the morning and the camp was quite deserted. Most people had gone and the Nazis had gone. More from Eva after this. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This whole camp, whole this area was about, I don't know, three, four hundred people left. But all the others had gone. Well, later, after the war, when everything was known, those were called the death marches. And most people, of course, perished. Because how can you walk into Germany for days in the winter without food? And the Russian found everywhere short bodies. Sometimes they were sitting down because they couldn't and the Nazis shot them. Sometimes they just died on the roadside in the snow. Yeah, and so we just waited and waited. And so one day we were again looking around if we can find anything to eat because they hadn't emptied all the barracks. We found bits and pieces. And at the gates stood a huge bear, but I looked closer and it was a soldier, Russian soldier, but all in furs and snow, icicles and so, don't know where he came from. And um, there were some Polish people as well with us and they spoke with him and he said, well, he's a scout to find out if the army can follow or if they have to fight or whatever, you know. But he said, I can't do anything for you. I'll go back to my army, but the army is going to come and they will look after you. So that is what happened. He disappeared again. Of course, some people died in the meantime. And one of my jobs, I think this is the worst I've done, was to carry bodies out. The 
people who had still spoken in the day before had died in the night. And there was a Polish woman and me, we were still the strongest. So she said, you have to help me take the body out. And we couldn't bury them, there was snow, so we just piled them out. Later, after the war, I had nightmares about this. I was only 15 years old. And indeed, the Russians came with horses and a field kitchen, and they stayed the night, and they cooked cabbage soup, very greasy, but bacon and fat in it, and they gave us big metal bowls, and we ate and ate and ate. But I've never been so painful night on a bucket because the food went straight through me. And in the morning, many people had died from overeating because the body just couldn't digest all this food. So we realized we have to be very careful. And then the Russians left again to pursue the Nazis because that is 27th of January, you know, that is liberation of Auschwitz. But it wasn't really, you know. You were still not free. Well, you were free, but you couldn't do anything. It was still hopeless, actually. So if we stayed a few days, and then a French girl said to me, let's go to the men camp. Perhaps we get help there. Perhaps we can do something. So we did. But that was very dangerous. We went at night because there was still shooting. We heard the bullets was flying over our heads, and they were in the middle of fighting on this area still. And we didn't actually know exactly where it is, so it took us six hours walking there. But eventually we found it. It's again a miracle how we got there. And the Russian had made the headquarters there because it was all more solid, you know, the brick buildings and all that. It was daytime by then, and I asked, can I look around? So we didn't take any notice, so we went and looked. It was huge, and there were many barracks, and I went in all those barracks, and here and there were men sitting. Sometimes they were standing, didn't know what to do. I started to ask a few people if they had known a father and son, and some didn't understand me, and... I didn't really know what am I going to do now, you know. And then I saw a man standing somewhere that they looked a little bit familiar. So I thought, well, I must know him, I don't know. So I went to him and I said, I think I know you. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know you too. You are Eva Geiriger. I'm Otto Frank. I said, oh, I didn't recognize you really. You look so thin. He said, yeah, well, have you seen my daughters and my wife? I said, no, never saw them. Have you seen my father and brother? Yes, yes, they were here, but they've gone with the Nazis. So it was perhaps beginning of February and January, February. So I said, well, it's more comfortable here. The Russians are there, there must be food around. So I went to fetch my mother which was very difficult because she was very, very weak, could hardly walk, but we got there eventually. We moved into one of the barracks, and it was okay because we could get food. The Russia gave us food and shared everything with us. And so we stayed there perhaps, I don't know, three weeks or something, and then the Russians decided they're still fighting in this neighborhood. They might still come back, the Nazis. So they would evacuate us eastward. So they organized first a bus and then um, a train. Again, cattle tracks, the same transport as we were going to Auschwitz. But there was a stove in the middle. The doors were kept open. They gave us food three times a day and drink. There were no toilets, of course, there. So it stopped and we had to go next to the railway line when it stopped to relieve ourselves. But the Russians were very, very good. I have no complaints. And you were with Otto Frank at this point? He was as well on this transport. Prisoners of war came as well, who were liberated somewhere. It became quite a long transport. We had perhaps 10 wagons, 
and Otto was not in our wagon. But he kept very much to himself. Also people, when it stopped, went down and talked with each other. And we never actually saw him. So we knew he was there, but he was still hoping to find his family. Well, we were all hoping. Eventually, we ended up in May in Odessa, which is, if you look it up, it's a long journey, but it took us from February till May to get there. Then we waited for the end of the war. And of course, we were worried that how are we ever going to come back to the West? We had nothing. We were penniless, couldn't really speak with the Russians. And it was a very, very tricky situation. Eventually, New Zealand troop transport ship came and we were loaded into it. I mean, the Russians were good, but it was very limited what they offered, you know. But that was the first time that we were human beings eating on white tablecloths with proper cutlery, having sheets on our beds. And then eventually the French said in Marseille, you can come to us and we will let the people down. So we ended up in Marseille. Were you able to have any happiness in that time to be grateful for survival or were you traumatised and worried about your family members? We were very pleased that we had survived and we were very hopeful that they had survived. We were all hopeful we would find our family back again. When we were in Amsterdam, we put newspaper adverts, we went to the stations because each day people came to Germany, to Holland. It just was a big movement from people who had been liberated in different places and so on. But eventually we got a letter from the Red Cross to my mother that your husband, with name and birth date, really very accurate, died with a date in April, several days before the Americans came to liberate that camp, Mauthausen. So that was our last straw. We had really hoped they would come back as well. And I didn't accept it, you know. I couldn't believe it that my father, who was such a strong, sporty man, hadn't survived. I just didn't. I couldn't accept it. And that made it so very difficult. And Otto Frank, of course, heard as well that his whole family had perished. And in January 1946, I wrote a letter, because my mother kept it, to myself, really, that life has no meaning for me at all without my family. I'd like to commit suicide. I didn't do it, obviously, but that's how I felt. I had really no will and no pleasure to carry on life. I was completely depressed. I survived in the camp because I always wanted to have a family and I thought like we were a happy family, that it was my aim in life. But when I realized we will never be a happy family again, I just got completely depressed and had nightmares, I had all those scenes in front of me. And it was for years and years I suffered with that. I had to go back to school, but um, Otto and my mother later on then decided I should become a photographer. And I didn't really care. Otto knew somebody in London who had a photographic studio, and he got me a job there. And I went to a year to England. And I lived in a boarding house run by a Czech refugee. And there was about six people lived there. And at that time, in the 50s, was early 50s, England was still under rationing, terribly bombed. Everywhere were bomb sites. You can't imagine how poor England was at the time. Food was very, very rationed. You got two eggs a week, one piece of meat a week. And so I was not really very happy. It was said I'm going to Holland as soon as finished, so I didn't want to live in Holland either. And then this young man, we got on well. We, we had no money. We went for walks. And then after six months, he said, I fall in love with you. Will you marry me? And when I'm finished my study, we can start a new life and go to Israel. 
but I didn't want to go to Israel. I'd lived already in four countries. I didn't want to learn another language, you know, and I wasn't going to leave my mother on her own because I was very close, of course, to my mother, as you can understand. And then Otto came one day to look how I was doing. I told him this young man had asked me to marry him, but of course I'm not because I go back to Amsterdam to my mother and he's got a bit embarrassed and he said, well, your mother and me have fallen in love as well and once you get settled, we like to get married. I didn't love this young man. I liked him, but love was not in my capacity, you know. I had no high emotion like that, only hate. So I went back to him and said, look, we can get married. So he was very, very pleased. And I didn't want to go to Israel, so we stayed in England. How did you feel when your mother married Otto Frank? Were you happy for her? Well, yes, I was happy because I realized then I can lead my own life. We were very, very close and Otto was a very, very nice person and I knew, but it was really love. And later I questioned my mother, you had a wonderful marriage with my father. How can you love somebody else so much, you know? And Otto was, of course, only occupied with Anne. That was his main purpose in his life. But my mother really loved him and he really loved my mother. I must say his marriage to his own wife was an arranged marriage and he didn't really love her. I must say I've never seen two people working so loving together and discussing everything and I've never ever seen them quarreling. And they were, Otto including, he was of course a wonderful grandfather to my three daughters because we had nobody else. So that was nice for my children. You know, they had sort of grandparents, which was lovely. And they had a room in our house and they spent three months with us and all the holidays we went together. So we had a family again, but I was very shy. If there were two people, I didn't open my mouth till the eighties, 86. So more than 40 years. I had never spoken about my experience, not to my family. The children did never know anything about it. They knew, of course, through Otto and they could put things together. And in 1986, Ken Livingston, he organized an Anne Frank exhibition to come to England for the very first time. And of course, my mother and me were invited. Otto had already died. He was 17 years older than my mother, but it didn't matter at all. Ken Livingston said to me, sit with us at the head table because there were a few speakers. And so I said, okay, I'll sit up there. And then at the end, after everybody spoke, how important it is to talk about the Holocaust and what it was like and all this. Then he said, and now Eva, we want to talk to you. Well, I wanted to hide under the table. I was not a speaker, I was shy, and so he's get up, get up, go on, tell. So I stood and saw this crowd, you know, I, I was in shock again. But eventually the gates opened and I just couldn't stop. It was a great relief. It was the first time spoken. So it was the first night that I slept without uh, terror. Then this exhibition traveled all over England and they always asked me to go and speak, which of course I couldn't. I asked my husband to write a speech for me, which I read very badly, but eventually I found my voice. And so you and Otto and your mother turned Anne Frank into one of the great icons of the 20th century, really. In the 40s, 50s, people didn't want to know about, you know, they said it was all terrible, but let's move on. And only when it was published in America, there was a Jewish journalist who wrote in the New York Times a big article about it. And then it became a bestseller. But Otto had difficulty finding a publisher in America. But he didn't want any money for it. And eventually, Doubleday, a publisher, said, OK, we'll publish it. 
And it was really the first story which had come out properly. But I always say it was not really a Holocaust story. It was just hiding. The Holocaust is the camps and the figures, six billion. And yeah, that's quite different. Why was Otto so driven? Did that heal him? That the world would hear about his daughter. He wanted to make her immortal as well. That was definitely his aim. Like Otto, you have sought recognition for your brother. Very often my mother said to me, she said, Anna, yeah, everybody knows who she was. But Heinz, nobody knows who he was. But you found his paintings in the hiding place. Yeah, we went back there and we found them there. I mean, that's really a very moving story by itself. I had them at home always, first my mother had them, then I had them. And I thought, well, that's no good me having them. People should see that. And I looked for a museum. And eventually in Amsterdam, the Resistance Museum. It's a very nice uh, museum telling the life of the resistance workers and so on. And they made a special thing about the exhibition when Heinz was 12 that he asked what will happen when I die and my father said well nothing gets lost you will be remembered for what you have done even if it was little and so in his case it was a lot what he have done in his short life so this is the promise that I will kept the promise to Heinz that he won't be forgotten in the world today, people are talking a lot about the march of the extremes again, the, the far right, anti-Semitism, worrying treatment of migrants, politics moving to the extremes. What do you feel as you look out on the world today? Well, I think we haven't learned anything. After the war, people said, we have learned our lesson, never again will anything like this happen. But history has repeated itself. There have been terrible wars. There have been terrible things to certain countries have been ruined completely through greed of other nations. No, we haven't learned anything. And what I think is the young people are trying when they're young, they want to change, they see things are not going well. But life is so difficult nowadays to get a job, to get a good living, to buy property to where you can live, to earn enough money that they become greedy again and all the good intentions go. I do speak about it all the time because I get an audience and people leave and say, yes, we have to change. So perhaps a little bit sticks, perhaps eventually people will realize that it's no good being so evil. And I always dispute, they say, Anne, she quotes this as well. She still believes in the goodness of mankind. I said, would she have said this had she survived Auschwitz and seen what those people were doing to each other? Of course, in hiding, she was protected. So she had not experienced that, and she could easily say that. After 80 years, can you forgive the people that did this to you and your family? I would say no, not for people who did all this, who were the guards and the leaders and all those. No, because they were really criminals, evil. But the German population, yes, I could accept that. In Richmond here, there is a German school, high school, I spoke there as well one day, and children were 12, 14, so this age, and we had lunch with them, and I sat next to a boy, and I asked him that conversation, do you mix with the English population? Have you got English friends? He said, well, not really, because our parents mix with the other parents of all German-speaking and so we usually mix with this paper. The only time we get in touch with English children is when we play football. And then he started to cry, but really badly crying. And I said, what's the matter? Did I say something wrong to you? He said, no. I said, oh, oh. but she still called me the Nazi. 
but I'm not a Nazi. He said, I had nothing to do with it. And then I said, well, it's true. This generation and even the previous generation is innocent. We can't condemn them. And the Germans have really accepted their guilt. They have helped Israel wouldn't be what it is without the German help. And they pay to the victims, they pay a lot of money, pensions and all that, they look after them. They have accepted that that was a terrible thing they've done. And first of all, this prejudice against people who have different color or a different religion is completely unacceptable. And that should be forbidden. People should go to prison or put a big fine if they make nasty remarks about people or, or ignore them or don't give them the same kind of jobs or the same opportunity. This is the first thing, because we are all equal. My husband always used to say, there's just one race, the human race. And it doesn't matter from which country you come and what language you speak or what religion. I think I have hope that sometimes we will see the light. Eva Schloss, Holocaust survivor, speaker and writer. Her memoir is called After Auschwitz, a story of heartbreak and survival by the stepsister of Anne Frank. After I record this episode, I drove home and I rang my wife to tell her I was going to be late and explain why. I burst into tears for the first time in a long time. Thank you for listening. If you're moved by this episode, please leave us a review. The producer was Marianne Desforges. The assistant producer was Hannah Ward. This episode was mastered by Dougal Patmore. Bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.